0: Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG, and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg is being sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. For a 360 degree view of investor mandate activity across alternative investments, turn to Alternatives Watch. Vidrio Financial is the first technology enabled service for allocators looking to harness investment complexity and make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com that is V I D R I O dot
1: Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We would like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Siamak Molemi, fellow Columbia Business School professor, will join us. So, listeners have a high level sense of our roadmap. We will start with some background, then discuss investing in technology. This podcast will have two primary themes, DeFi, or decentralized finance, and quantitative investing. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from CMAX Insight. On that note, welcome, CMAX.
2: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, Why don't you start with your background and, and what you're up to now?
2: So let me start from the, uh, the beginning. Um, you may not know, and you might be surprised but I'm a high school dropout. I figured out when I was in 11th grade in high school that I didn't actually need to graduate, and uh, I left a year early and I went to MIT. And when I was at MIT, I became very interested in, in mathematics and computation, but not so much pure math as much as math with applications. And the kind of applications I, I, I drifted towards were, were financial applications. Indeed, from that time, uh, I started working at a hedge fund in Kendall Square near, uh, near MIT, doing um, a fixed income uh, relative value trading. And, and that's what I did uh, after I graduated. After a while, uh, I sort of decided it would kind of be nice to be a professor. Um, it turns out you need this PhD thing. I stopped what I was doing, and I went out to, to, to California to get a, a PhD at Stanford. But once I got my PhD uh, since then, which was about uh, 2007, Um, I've come to Columbia um, where I'm at the business school and um, my interests in, you know, are twofold. I'm interested in an abstract class of mathematical problems known as stochastic control. These are problems where an agent needs to make decisions over time and there is uncertainty about the future which is usually modeled through probability distributions. So that's a general class of problems that I'm interested in. And the specific applications of that that I'm interested in are in finance. So namely things like in quant finance, so quantitative trading, a market microstructure. And these days I've become very interested in blockchain and in uh, decentralized finance.
1: That's great. Thanks. Let's start with technology. You and I have known each other through mutual colleagues at Columbia Business school, but when I started researching your back catalog, I, I was super impressed that in 1991, you know one of your earlier papers was about 25 years before much of the world had heard of the term neural nets and involved using neural net. And, and the paper was, I believe, classifying cells for cancer diagnosis using neural networks. So I think that was actually maybe 30 years ahead of your time. But anyway, yeah, i be curious to hear your thoughts. You know, it must have been a challenge in light of the expensive computing power, lack of computing power, relatively less sophisticated machine learning and lack of data.
2: I think this is a great illustration of uh, of how far things have come. Um, This was a paper I wrote um, when I was in high school, I was uh, doing an internship at a a local university, and I was developing neural networks to analyze images of urine cells to determine if they were cancerous or not. Now, when you think neural network, probably you're thinking these days something like a a large language model. So you're thinking something with like, uh, you know, modern LLMs have hundreds of billions of parameters the neural network i was using back in uh, you know 1990 1991 had about 150 parameters so we're talking about a neural network whose scale is like 1 billion times smaller than a uh, than a modern neural network but uh, nevertheless uh, actually it was it was quite challenging to uh, train at the time so at the time um, you couldn't do it on a desktop computer you couldn't even do it on something like a sun workstation or other types of workstations that were popular at the time, I used a convex C120 supercomputer, which I had access to from the university, to train this network, which is, again, tiny by our modern standards. I think that kind of illustrates how far things have evolved on the kind of computational scale we have today. That's really a modern phenomena that certainly, you know, 30 years ago did not exist.
1: Yeah, I mean, to your point, there's a statistic that we love, which is a million dollars of computer computing power in 1980 costs four cents today, which is nothing you don't know. It's really quite stunning. Yeah. Anyway, and then it looks, it seems as though your research progressed in science a bit and then shifted to finance. Maybe you could talk a bit about that transition.
2: Yeah. So, you know, my interests have always been uh, as an applied mathematician, and I've been a bit agnostic about precisely um, what that application is. So at times, I've early in my career, I worked on finance in the 90s. You know, as I mentioned, I did fixed income relative value trading. I worked at a biotech startup then where I applied mathematical models for computational chemistry and for, for drug discovery. Um, when I did my PhD, I was at Stanford in the electrical engineering department. Again, I was you know, working in this area of stochastic control, but the main applications there were to, to things like controlling computer networks or to controlling uh, robots. Once I got a faculty position at Columbia, I was at the business school, it was actually quite natural for me to switch back into finance because you know that's more of a business school kind of topic. But I've always been agnostic. The thing that's important for me is that there be an application and that someone be interested in implementing the other uh, methods that I develop.
1: Understood. Let's shift now to the first theme, DeFi or decentralized finance, specifically as it pertains to crypto currencies and Bitcoin. What catalyzed your writing an, the paper, An Economist's Perspective on Bitcoin and the aptly titled Monopoly Without a Monopolist Bitcoin, which are obviously sort of deriv- derivatives of the same paper. And, and what were your conclusions?
2: Yeah, so I got uh, really interested in studying the Bitcoin system around uh, um, 2015, 2016. At its core, Bitcoin is a payment system. It is a system wherein it keeps track of this asset, these these coins. And it internally, through its own activity, provides a mechanism for people to pay each other with coins and to keep track of who owns uh, what coin. In some ways, it's really analogous to other payment systems that we are familiar with, things like um, Venmo or PayPal or so on. In another way, it's quite different in that unlike those systems, it is decentralized. There is no company that operates Bitcoin. There's no company that is validating the transactions, that is making sure that people don't double spend their funds and and, and so on and so forth. Instead, in the decentralized world of Bitcoin, the security comes from the fact that you have many validators, more commonly known as miners, who are all checking each other's work, who are all checking that the transactions um, are are valid, that they're cryptographically signed, so that if I send you one Bitcoin, Michael, that it's actually my Bitcoin that I'm sending you, that I haven't spent it before, and uh, so on. So I became really interested in, in understanding the uh, the economics of this, like uh, how do people um, pay for it, right? So how does the system fund itself? How do we make sure that we have enough validators who are checking each other's work and, and, and so on? And when we dug into it, the, the Bitcoin system relies on two different mechanisms to pay people. One is the idea of block rewards, right? So the idea is if you are the validator that produces the next block on the Bitcoin um, blockchain, you get some newly created Bitcoin that are minted out of thin air, that's a part of the compensation for producing a block. Um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto's vision was that this is a near-term um, bootstrapping mechanism. The idea was that in the long run, these um, block rewards would disappear, that the supply of Bitcoin would, uh, would ultimately cap out at 21 million Bitcoin or, or, or whatever, and that instead, the system would be funded by transaction fees. Now, what are the idea of transaction fees? If I want to make a transfer in the Bitcoin system, what I'll do is I'll attach a transaction fee to it, and that goes to whatever miner or validator processes that that transaction. And the idea behind this is that these fees are voluntary and they can be set to whatever the user wants. However, the validators are going to look at this, and they're um, because they get to keep the fees. They're going to prioritize so that transactions with higher transaction fees get processed earlier than transactions with um, a lower uh, fees. So, in, in in some ways, this is a little bit like a uh, like a toll road right? Like you can offer to sort of pay more to use a toll road to say, go to the airport rather than use the regular highway. And in a way, offering transaction fees allows you to sort of cut in front of the line. In some ways, like what Satoshi Nakamoto did, the the, uh, the inventor of Bitcoin is kind of quite amazing in that he managed to, you know, sort of get all these incentives aligned so that the system works and does process, you know, billions of dollars of payments a day. But, you know, what we did in our academic work is we analyzed this, this transaction fee mechanism from a game theoretic perspective and found that it's ultimately a bit flawed. And, and the challenge is as, as follows. If the Bitcoin um, network is not very busy, then no one will pay transaction fees. You know, the reasoning there is quite simple. It's the same as if you're going to the airport and there is no traffic. Most people would just rather take the regular road and save money versus taking the uh, toll road. On the other hand, if the uh, the system becomes busy, then the uh, the level of transaction fees that needs to be paid becomes unstable and really quickly, you know, explodes. Our sort of conclusion from this paper was really that the specific transaction fee of mechanism of Bitcoin is challenging and and is likely to be um, sort of uh, problematic in the long run in that it requires congestion, right? Either you have um, congestion and the system is very busy. The positive side of that is then the transaction fees will pay for things. But the negative side of that is that the system will be very slow and um, transactions will take a long time to go through and so on. On the other hand, you could have a world in that where the system is not very busy, but in that world, uh, no one will pay for transactions. Eventually miners and validators will drop out and then the, the system will become uh, insecure. So this really highlighted some issues with that, the idea of, of congestion as a long-term payment, of a, a long-term funding mechanism for Bitcoin. And, you know, since that, we can see you know, systems like Ethereum have developed other things aside from, you know, voluntary congestion payments. For example, the idea of having a base fee that everybody pays no matter what, no matter whether the system is, uh, is busy or not. And I think um, uh, some of those ideas have been sort of uh, I- implied by our earlier work. So he's definitely very interested in the underlying economics of uh, blockchains.
1: Look, again, I know you're very knowledgeable about Ethereum. I mean, to me, Ethereum should be far more valuable than Bitcoin, because you might make the argument that Bitcoin is a capacity constrained instrument and a store of value. But Ethereum has actual material and potentially valuable transactional use. So to me, I could see far more utility in Ethereum than Bitcoin, but curious to hear your thoughts. I don't
2: want to opine on what the value of things should be, because I think that's sort of a very, uh, very hard question, i.e. What, what should the price be? My um, focus has been more on what is a technology capable of. And then from that perspective, I absolutely agree with you. Um, Ethereum is much more capable simply because it is a smart contract platform, not a, a payment platform. So in, in, in Bitcoin, the core functionality of the system is that you can pay other people right? In Ethereum, if you look at payments and you splint your eyes, that looks like a basic computer, right? Like you, different people have balances. um, You can move money from one balance to another. In in some sense, it's a computer, but it's a very restricted computer. The the innovation of Ethereum was to say, let's take this and let's make it a full general purpose computer, what computer scientists would call Turing complete. So Ethereum, you have, you have smart contracts. These are really arbitrary computer programs. Just the Ethereum system itself through these smart contracts has a lot more functionality. You can do things things like you can implement decentralized exchanges or you can implement lending protocols or you can run general purpose uh, um, uh, computer programs. So in my mind, from a technological perspective, Ethereum and, and, and really most other modern blockchains are far more capable than Bitcoin. Now, um, I don't want to predict, however, um, what impact that would have on, on the relative prices.
1: Right. Okay. That's fair. Shifting gears to um, systematic investing. You have considerable knowledge, academic background, practitioner background. Maybe you could give your thoughts on systematic or as many people refer to them, black box strategies, though obviously to us, they're not.
2: Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to sort of dive in and uh, understand how uh, systematic strategies work, because I think they're generally viewed as a black box. And although there are things that are um, mysterious and that people are very secretive about, I think the overall, from a big picture perspective, the broad pieces are generally done the same way across the industry and are broadly known. Now just to be clear, the kind of systematic investing I'm talking about here is going to be active trading. So here I'm thinking of strategies like statistical arbitrage or um, a trend following or or so on. And these types of strategies typically have three main pieces. The first piece is the forecasting piece, or oftentimes what people call alpha models, right? And the idea here is, if I'm buying because I think it's cheap, then I have to have a view on what's cheap or what's expensive or so on. And usually the way we think about that is we have a forecast of what it's going to be worth in the uh, the future. And we compare that forecast to the price that it is now in order to understand cheapness or, uh, or expensiveness. So where do these forecasts come from? They can come from many different sources. So on the one hand, we can consider things like microstructure forecasts. We can look at activity in a limit order book. We can look at trades and so on. And based on those things, we can try to make predictions on what is the price going to be a minute from now, maybe at the close, maybe at tomorrow's close. You might have other types of forecasts. Maybe you have forecasts based on fundamentals. Maybe there's going to be an earnings announcement next week. And based on uh, various data, you might predict that the company is going to miss earnings Earnings, and therefore, that may um, yield a forecast that the price is going to drop right after the earnings announcement. So, there's a whole range of different types of ways people can forecast. People, um, different firms tend to compete on two different dimensions in terms of the forecasting. The first dimension is um, what data you use. The most basic data to use is technical data, uh, which means basically prices and volumes and trades in the uh, in, in the market. So, so to use basically past market activity to predict future market activity. That's yeah. the the most basic thing. But you know, really in the in the past ten years, there's been a lot of innovation in terms of alternative data. So maybe leveraging things like satellite images of parking lots, or um, you know, in order to predict whether stores are full and whether you know Walmart is going to miss its earnings or not, or or credit card receivable. Or anything else. But you know, one dimension firms compete on is what data to use. The other dimension um, firms compete on is what types of machine learning methodology, they're going to um, leverage to make those predictions. It used to be that that many of the predictions were done with very simple things like uh, like linear regression, right? But as computers have grown, you know, more powerful, as we talked about earlier, things have shifted to uh, random forests, or, or, or these days, neural networks, and so on. Models, which are much more sort of black box, they take in data, they make a prediction, what's the price going to be tomorrow, but very, very little structural understanding of prediction is, is going on. So that's the first piece, the, the Alpha piece. Now, the reality is firms don't have one alpha, they might have tens to uh, hundreds to even thousands of alphas, right? So they combine all of these alphas to let's say one composite view for each asset that you're trading, what is the price going to be over various uh, uh, horizons. That leads to the next part of the other strategy, which is portfolio construction. The idea of portfolio construction is okay, I'm trading a universe of, let's say, 3,000 US equities. I have predictions for each of these equities in terms of, you know, is the price going to go up or is it going to go down? How do I synthesize all of those into one um, portfolio, which, which is sort of the target portfolio to hold? The key thing, the additional ingredients here are number one, you worry about risk. So you're going to have constraints on how much risk you take. You're going to have penalties for taking risk. Because although you believe these predictions on average, more often than not, these predictions are very, very weak. Right, so you know, it's it's like you're tossing a coin where um, the chance of heads is maybe 51% versus 49% tails. So in the presence of these very weak predictions, you have to be very careful about risk. That's one component, and the second component is transaction costs. Right, thinking about what portfolio to form, a, a big ingredient is how much is it going to cost me to trade to achieve uh, um, uh, that portfolio. Because if those costs exceed the amount of money you're going to make by holding that portfolio, then maybe that's a uh, not a good uh, good portfolio to hold. So that's really the second and middle piece of the the, the strategy. The output of this piece is going to be a set of target positions, a target portfolio to hold. And that leads to the final piece, which is sort of the trading and execution piece. And so the idea here is I have the current portfolio in one hand. In my other hand, I have the target portfolio. I have some amount of time, like maybe over the next 15 minutes. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to get as close to that target portfolio as possible over the next uh, 15 minutes by placing limit orders and market orders on electronic exchanges and so on. So this is something that some firms do themselves. Oftentimes, some firms uh, use third-party broker algorithms. But uh, the idea is then over these 15 minutes, let's say you trade, and 15 minutes from now, you revisit all your forecasts, you solve for a new target portfolio, the process repeats.
1: We're running out of time, but I just want to touch on briefly, you mentioned limit order books, and I know you've done considerable research on that. And I know at one point you thought they were the end game, but now you're thinking maybe not so much. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think you know if we look at how let's say electronic assets are uh, traded, the dominant form of market microstructure, in other words, what are the rules of the market, are, are limit order books. So that's how Nasdaq works. That's how the CME works. That's how the London Stock Exchange works. That's how Coinbase works. And the idea of a, of a limit order book is investors participate by placing limit orders. Right? They can you know they say how many shares or tokens or whatever they want at what price, and these limit orders sit in a book, and then other agents can come in and, and, and trade against them. Limit order books have been very successful. Like I mentioned, it's it's sort of the dominant form of microstructure in electronic markets. My view, let's say five years ago, was that this is sort of the end game. This is how most assets will trade. If you if you sort of think about it a little bit, limit order books require an enormous amount of sophistication. Right. If you are a market maker in a in a limit order book, um you're basically a high frequency trader. You're a company like Citadel Securities or Virtu, and you need to hire an army of, let's say, my former PhDs. You need technologists to co-locate machines, you know, so on. It's uh it's an incredibly um technologically sophisticated you know endeavor. On the other hand, if you're a market participant, uh, let's say your Fidelity Investments, just to pick a name at random, and let's say you're rebalancing a pension fund and you need to buy a, a, a million dollars of Google stock, you just don't go into a limit order book and put in an order for you know a million dollars or $10 million. That would move the price too much. So instead, what you do is you use an algorithm. You use a, a, a VWAP algorithm or a TWAP algorithm or whatever. If you can't do it yourself, you do it through a broker who offers uh, algorithms. And what these algorithms do is they spread your trading out over time to minimize your market impact and to try and acquire those shares at a good price. Now, if you sort of pause and take a step back, if you have a system, which while it is very expressive and powerful, you have the agents on both sides needing to strategize and needing to co-locate computers and hire PhDs and so on and so forth. From my perspective, that's really a failure of the mechanism. Right, the mechanism should take care of all this for you. You shouldn't need an army of uh, of, of PhDs. We've started to see some of this in in the blockchain world, where in the world of decentralized exchanges, people have come up with alternative mechanisms that are that are sort of quite different than uh, than limit order books. That in some sense require much less sophistication on the part of the market participants. In my mind, this is really an active research area. This is something I'm super interested in. It's not like uh, we have all the answers, but things like, let's say, automated market makers or, say, frequent batch auctions, which are another idea that is uh, sort of popular in the uh, in the crypto world. I think these ideas are interesting alternatives to try and explore and maybe port back into the traditional finance world. Maybe we can come up with better ways to trade assets, ways that really need fewer intermediaries, right? Uh, you know, again, high frequency traders I have nothing against high-frequency traders. They're providing a service. They're intermediating between organic buyers and sellers in a limit order book right? And um, they, they deserve to get paid for that service. On the other hand, if we can come up with a market mechanism that does not require their services, I think that would be strictly better. It would allow the organic buyers and sellers to trade more directly, not require this type of uh, intermediation, and ultimately allow more and uh, cheaper trade. So I think this is a very interesting uh, area to explore. And it's certainly something that I am very excited about.
1: Well, we could spend hours on all of these topics, Bitcoin, neural nets, Ethereum, uh, limit orders, quant strategy, quant black box investing. But unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. Look, C-Mac, uh, we'd like to thank you for that super interesting discussion and sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. We hope listeners have a better appreciation for what one of our more thoughtful asset owners is thinking about and how we may all benefit from this. This is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation.
0: Thank you for listening to improving alpha innovation in investing ESG and technology sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, OCIOs, and sovereign wealth funds, can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial or our host, michael oliver weinberg the content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning